Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The demands of Christianity are impossible. Think, a government can require rightly of its citizens that we not murder each other. And we can obey. That's possible. But that is not what Christianity demands of its members. Instead, as Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So far, that's possible. But, Jesus continues, I say to you, within Christianity, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What government could ever eradicate unjust anger among its citizens? We could legislate that, but it would be absolutely impossible to enforce. Yet it is no less than this that Christ aims for among citizens of his kingdom. Most earthly governments would be glad to settle for outward adherence to laws. Just do what we would have you do. End of story. They would be happy. And yet Christ is not happy with that. We saw it in Psalm 50 today. He doesn't need our sacrifices. If he were hungry, he's not going to tell you. He doesn't just want outward adherence to commands like do not murder, Christ and Christianity will not settle for less than the transformation of your very heart, your very inner person, something that no religion, no government could ever accomplish. This and no less than this is what Christianity demands of all those who would truly follow it. That's not possible. There is a story that the French conqueror Napoleon mused, it may not be true, but it is said that he mused that he, by the quickness of his glance and by his imposing presence, could demand the obedience of many soldiers while he was there with them. But he said, that is nothing to Christ's influence for here's a man who's not physically with his people and yet at this moment there are not thousands of French soldiers, but rather millions and millions of people from diverse countries and environments who, for a Christ they've never seen, would happily lay down their lives now. That's what Christianity demands, not something even a great conqueror like Napoleon can accomplish. You, therefore, Jesus says, must be perfect. That is complete, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The problem is you can't be. You can't. That's not a possible accomplishment. You're not able to do that. Look at the world that you live in. Who's doing that? That's not naturally possible. That would be possible only if the Almighty God who gave that command to Christians also supplied a more than human power to obey it. And that is what God has done. Christianity is not, humanly speaking, possible. 
but divinely speaking, it is. Because God has given not only the command, but the power. Has not only demanded that you fly, but has given wings. Does this resurrected Christ here at the end of our text in Luke really expect that this small band of ex-fishermen who have failed him for three years rather consistently, even while he was present with them, will now go forth from him and faithfully declare that he has risen from the dead and turn the world on its head? It's not likely. That's not possible. Does he expect that of them? Does he expect that this wavering Peter will become bold Peter, proclaiming Christ even to the death and no longer abandoning him? Does Jesus at this time believe that Thomas, that doubter, will become Thomas the confident? Does he believe that the sons of thunder will stop asking God to consume their foes with fire and instead will be burnt up with love for even their enemies? That's not possible. Unless Jesus has a power to provide them that would make that possible. And as we come to the end of the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus commissions these weak followers to do impossible things, he also provides for them a power that makes those impossible things possible. Let's look at that. This is the very day that Jesus has risen from the dead. He has revealed himself to his apostles And now we come to verse 48 of Luke 24. You, apostles, Jesus says, are witnesses of these things, meaning Jesus' death, resurrection. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. It is interesting that this is the first command Christ gives them as they prepare to really conquer the whole earth. And when we look back on this moment, we know that within the span of a few hundred years, Christianity would conquer even the great Roman Empire. And this is the first command given in that great conquest. Stay. The apostles have to stay where they are. Not anymore because they're afraid of the Jews. That's why they were in the room in the first place with the doors locked. But now they must stay because the task that Christ is giving them is an impossible task. You can't go and sway the entire Roman Empire, much less all the nations, through this great message of the resurrection of this, at this point, no-name rabbi, Jesus, by human power. It won't happen. Therefore, Christ's first command to these apostles is stay where you are until you are clothed with the power necessary to do this great work. And that is what we are going to look at today. Very applicable because the task they were commissioned to do as apostles is not unlike the task that you are commissioned to do as their descendants, as Christians following the message that they faithfully conveyed. Christianity, whether for them or for you, is as impossible as it was for them. You're not able to do it. You can't do it. If you feel that way, you're right. Unless you are given the power.
power from on high to live the Christian life faithfully. And if you wonder where that power comes from, this is where it comes from. Jesus speaks of it now, first to them and then to us. So what we're going to do is follow these few verses in Luke and consider two things. First, the necessity of this power. So necessary that they have to stay put until they have it. But then secondly, what is the power itself for them, but also for you, by which you can live the Christian life? So let's consider that one after the other. So let's begin with the necessity of this power that Jesus speaks of. And it's obvious in our text that it's necessary in more ways than one. To begin with, just as we said, consider that first command that Jesus gives them. Stay in the city until you're clothed with the power from on high. Remember for a moment just what it is that they're going to do after this happens. What is the task, the commission, if you will, that Christ is giving to these apostles? Well, he just said it. It was predicted in the Old Testament and he spoke about it in verse 47. He said that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. To declare repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name in one city is a massive undertaking. That's what we're doing in Evansville. It's big. We're not done yet. And there's a lot of churches here doing it. To do it in one nation, that's immense. That would require a small army of people working day and night to proclaim the message of Christ. But that is not the task they're being given. To whom are they to proclaim this message? For whom are they witnesses? It says, to all nations. Literally, the whole world. Therefore, you would expect to find masses of ready soldiers carefully prepared to go out. Thousands upon thousands. Hordes of people to bring this message to all the ends of the earth. So where is the army going to bring this message? And he says it in our text. He says, you, you're witnesses of these things. It begins really with this small band. The ten men, Thomas when he comes, the eleven, who are in this room. He says, stay and do this work. It should be proclaimed to all the nations. And yet they're the ones who are beginning it. Now we may imagine impetuous Peter, we've learned of his character throughout the Gospel of Luke, with a regrettable mouth, we know, might at this point have said something like, that is a large task, well, let's get to it. What are we waiting for? Let's go. That is a lot of people we have to tell the Gospel to, so let's go now. Sort of the person that Peter is. In the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus will appear again to these same disciples a little bit later, only this time the disciples will be in a boat fishing. Jesus will be out at the edge of the shore, and when Peter realizes it's Jesus, typical of Peter, it says, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord out there, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. <laughs> and then John adds, the other disciples came in the boat. But that's the sort of person Peter is. You do it now. And there's a lot about Peter that's very commendable. He doesn't want to wait. 
If there's a big job, job to be done, you do the job. And many times that sort of an attitude is valorous and virtuous. But as we see from this text, not all times. In this case, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for power from on high. And therefore the command is stay. Jesus has just given them the largest task ever given to a small body of people in the history of the entire world to convey a message to the entire world, to all the nations. And then his next command is stay where you are. Don't do it yet. Don't. Stay there. We imagine that would be difficult for someone like Peter. It would be difficult for us. But we know that if it's such a massive task... And if Jesus' first command is stay and wait, then whatever they're waiting for must be necessary. Jesus is not condoning some kind of laziness in these apostles. Stay and rest, do whatever you want, and share the gospel if you want to. That's not what he's advocating for them. He's not wasting precious time as if souls are not dying and sinking into hell. This is an important task, a massive task. So if he says, first wait... That means whatever they're waiting for, this power from on high must be absolutely necessary for them to accomplish the task. And it is. And this is really the same attitude that you and I ought to have when God, through his providence, tells us to wait. And many times he does. I know that even in this time of COVID, you probably as well, but I've spoken with multiple missionaries who have had plans to do God's work overseas, a noble task, and then COVID happened, and the plans are gone. The plans changed to stay and wait. But how can you stay and wait when there are so many perishing to the ends of the earth, to all nations? We're called to bring this message, and here are people who have labored to do it, to prepare to do it, or even to do it, and then COVID comes, and now they are stuck stateside, unable to do it. As if God by his providence said, stay where you are. And you know, whether you're a missionary or not, that many times waiting to do something can be harder than the doing of the something itself. And certainly that was probably true for these men as they wait. They'll be waiting 50 days in Jerusalem before they receive this power. I know one missionary I've spoken with is a friend who was in the... East Asia and had been for just a few years and was just beginning to see the fruit of ministry in a very difficult place. People coming to Christ and growing and then COVID. And now he's here. Stay. The attitude of the disciples, even of an impetuous Peter, has to be if Christ says it or God's providence demands it, then we'll be content with it. It must be necessary. We don't know why fully. In all cases, but it must be a necessary waiting. Now, this isn't just something I'm making up out of the text. <laughs> this is actually a theme that is clear throughout Scripture. You see waiting on the Lord everywhere. Think about Moses, the great man of old, that key figure of the Old Testament. You can read the story of Moses in the Exodus in just a few minutes, maybe an hour. But it didn't play out that way for Moses himself. In fact, Moses, growing up in the palace of the Egyptians, he was 40 years old when he finally went out to see his brothers, the enslaved Israelites, and struck down an Egyptian who was hurting one of them. And Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 that 
when Moses at 40 years of age struck down that Egyptian, he thought that his people, the Israelites, in their bondage would realize God was bringing them deliverance through him. I suppose that means Moses thought, now begins the deliverance of the Israelites through me. But what happens instead? The next day he goes out and his people reject him. They don't understand. And then the Pharaoh wants to kill him and he runs into the wilderness to survive. He is out in the desert. Do you know how long? 40 years shepherding animals. 40 years. I don't even know what that is. I'm not even 40 years. That's true for many here. That's how long he was waiting to bring deliverance to the people. He's not going to be, he's going to be 80 by the time that God appears to him in the burning bush and says, now is the time. Before it's wait, now, 40 years later, go, I will deliver the people through you. And perhaps that accounts for why when that happens, Moses says, I don't think I can do it. I tried. Didn't happen. Well, he does it because then God gave him power. And he brings the people out of their slavery and they go to the land of promise. And what happens? Moses, at 80 years of age, stands on the cusp of the land of promise, the final fulfillment of all he had hoped for. And the people rebel against God's word. And God says, stop, go back into the desert. And he does. How long? For 40 years. You don't want to wait 40 years when you're 80 years old. And yet God, who long before had planned to bring his people into the land of Canaan, for Moses at least, he had to wait 40 years to try, then fail. He had to wait another 40 years to try again and succeed. And then he had to wait another 40 years to finally succeed in bringing them into the land. And when he gets there, because of an outburst of anger, God doesn't even let him go in. Is this because God is unkind that he says, wait? But this is what you've called me to do and I want to do it. Stop. Wait. Door closed. No. There are times, just as in our text, when God tells his people, even those who have a great task ahead of them, you stay and you wait. I have purposes you don't know about. There are, in other words, more moving pieces in the history of the entire world that God is thinking about that you're not thinking about. You don't know about them. Moses didn't know what the purpose was. He didn't know that one day he and Elijah would stand on the Mount of Transfiguration and see the glorified Messiah ahead of them, preparing to go through his own exodus out of the world. He didn't know that. All he knew was 40 years and 40 years of waiting. David, too, was anointed king, and then he spent, after being anointed as king, years running away from Saul and from death. This man who should have all those years been sitting in a palace, not hiding in a cave. Even Simeon, that old man at the beginning of Luke, now that we come to the end, God had promised that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. But by the time he finally saw Christ as a baby in the temple, he was at the cusp of death. I don't know how many years he'd been waiting, but probably a while. God's ways are not our ways. And so if God, by his word, says to the apostles, this is your massive task, but wait until I say. Or if God, by his providence, says this is your massive task, but wait, door closed, wait here. 
then we all as Christians humbly come under what Christ wills for us. Many times that is go and do, but sometimes that is wait. And you see that here in this text. The first command the apostles are given is stay. So it's evident that the power there to receive is necessary because why else would he say stay until you get it? It's also evident because of all God had done in redemptive history to make sure that they would receive it. This staying and waiting to receive this power from on high was not a last-ditch effort on God's part, not an afterthought. By the way, here's some power. It wasn't that. In fact, our text says that they will receive the promise of my Father, Meaning that God the Father had in the Old Testament promised that this power at this time would come upon his people. So they might have to wait a few days, a few weeks, and that is difficult, but they should bear in mind God's been waiting, so to speak, hundreds of years. This is a part of his plan. And if it's a part of his plan, if it's been promised by the Father, then again, it's necessary. It's got to happen. That's what Luke's been saying over and over. It was predicted, it was promised, it has to be. Same here. So we see that whatever this power is that they are to receive, it is a necessary power. But what is the power? Luke doesn't tell us, interestingly. And so now we have to move from generalities about this power into a more specific focus. What is the power they're to receive? So important they have to wait for it. Well, you answer. What power was going to assist the early Christians in bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus? As verse 48 says. What power, verse 49, will Jesus send upon his people? What power was promised by the Father in the Old Testament? What power would the disciples receive specifically in Jerusalem, the city? What power would they be clothed with? What power would come from above? There's only one answer. The Holy Spirit. Luke, who wrote this gospel that bears his name, also wrote a sequel, the book of Acts, in your Bible. Luke, John, Acts. He wrote that. At the beginning of that book, which picks up where this one leaves off, he says, while staying with them, these apostles, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, he said, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Clearly, the power refers to the Holy Spirit. It's obvious. It's easy for us today to become accustomed to discussions of the Holy Spirit, and that for more reasons than one. On the one hand, it's just a term that you've heard a lot of times. You've heard about the Holy Spirit lots and lots of times. It's easy for anything you hear about often to become sort of a commonplace thing. Even reading this text can be commonplace because you've heard this before. But on top of that, we're living post-Azusa Street Pentecostalism from the early 1900s and a whole century of many excesses and oddities that we rightly want to distance ourselves from and it's all been related to the Holy Spirit Therefore, we might have even more of a reason not to think too much of the Holy Spirit because we don't want to be like those unusual people doing those unusual things. But whatever the reasons, we have to break free of these kinds of restraints. 
We have to, just as we see in this text, devote our minds at least now to the Holy Spirit Himself. Whatever excesses there are out there, we as Christians recognize the Christian life is impossible without the Holy Spirit. He's the power that we have. You have to have Him. And you have to live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. So whatever the things are that numb us to discussions of the Holy Spirit, we have to stamp them out and remove them now and be willing to think about, focus on the Holy Spirit in this text. Because there He is. And what is it about this Spirit, this power that we notice in this text? Well, the first thing we note is that the Spirit is God. Luke doesn't say that directly, but he implies it. Even in his text, he implies it. Now, he calls him in verse 49, power. You will receive power. That's clearly the Holy Spirit, but he's called power because that's the main thing he's going to be giving to his people so they can do their task. So, it's called metonymy. And he's using a different word to describe the Holy Spirit. But we should not take from the fact that he calls him power that the Holy Spirit is some kind of power or force. Like you might find in Star Wars, for example. That's sort of Eastern mysticism influence. That is not Christianity. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force out in the universe. He is, we know, one person of the triune Godhead. He is a person, and He is God Himself. It's suggested in this text even by Jesus' declaration that I am sending the Spirit. What Jesus means first is that in time, 50 days to be exact, He from His ascended place up at the right hand of the Father in heaven would send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to come upon the believers gathered in Jerusalem. The beginning of Acts, which Luke wrote, expresses when this took place. They were all gathered together. Suddenly, a sound of a rushing wind from heaven, from above, Jesus says, rushing wind from heaven enters into the room and then fiery tongues appear upon the heads of all who are there distributing themselves. The people leave the room, go out into the streets, these early Christians, and declare God, His great mighty deeds, in languages that they had never learned, but that people could understand. That's Pentecost. That is when this was literally fulfilled. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit, and in time, He did that. However, theologians have long recognized for hundreds and hundreds of years in the church that what Jesus does with the Spirit in time also tells us something of Jesus' relationship with the Spirit in eternity, outside of time. We're going to be talking about mysteries here. Hope you're ready for that. But this is the way that theologians express this. They say things like, the economic trinity doesn't have to do with money. It has to do with the way the trinity relates with each other in time, in redemptive history, such as Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. That's the economic trinity, the way we observe the trinity. The economic trinity reflects the imminent trinity, meaning the trinity, God, as he exists within himself outside of time. The relationships that we see 
among the persons of the Trinity in our Bible in time reflect something of the being of the Trinity outside of time. It's a mystery, but it has been a very important discussion and one of the most central discussions within Christianity, especially in the early hundreds of years of the church, but still today. So what do we mean practically? Because notice our text says, I am sending. Not that the Spirit will come all by himself, but that Jesus says, I specifically am sending. Now we know from John's gospel that there are times Jesus says, the Father will send the Spirit in my name. And there's another time where Jesus says, I will send the Spirit, just as in our text. So what is this? Is the Father sending the Spirit on Pentecost? Is the Son, Jesus, sending the Spirit? It appears that they're both sending the Spirit, because John clearly says that they both are. So in time, the economic trinity, if you like those terms, you can ignore them if you don't, let's just say in time, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. In time, the Father sent the Son, right? Sent the Son by means of the Spirit, but the Father sends him. And in John's Gospel, Jesus says that over and over. So in time, that's true. Now, how does that reflect something of the Trinity God within himself? Well, this is going to push your mind, okay? Hope you're okay with that. Well, what is it about God as he exists for all eternity that brings about that in time, the person of the Father would send the Son and the persons of the Father and Son would send the Spirit? Could it have been that in time, the Spirit could have sent the Father into the world? And we answer, no. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't just randomly chosen. The way Jesus speaks of his relationship with his father, it's not accidental. It's something that's always exists. It's an eternal relationship. Even before there were fathers and sons, even before there were humans, God existed as father, son, spirit. And so whatever that relationship was in eternity, which is beyond us to fully comprehend, it brought about that in time... The Father would send the Son, and the Father and the Son would send the Spirit. We call these, in theology, processions. Because you proceed, right? In a wedding, there's a procession. You proceed. Therefore, there is an eternal procession of the Son from the Father. And that eternal procession, how do we describe it? Again, it's beyond us, but the only way we can describe it in the most biblical terms possible is to say, well, he's a father and he's a son, so we call it generation. Eternally, the father generates the son. It's not a perfect analogy because if we were talking in time, that means at some point the son would be born. He wouldn't exist and he would because that's how sons happen on earth. But we're saying an eternal generation, an eternal fatherhood, an eternal sonship in their relationship, and similarly, an eternal procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son. What does that mean? I don't know. Do you know what that means? But it is a marvel of how God exists as a triune God. 
This means that when Jesus says, I'm sending the Spirit, that's in time, yes, but it's reflecting something more profound, and that is that in eternity, in some manner, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And theologians have wrestled with how you put that together. It's very difficult. But it seems we can at least say this, and you have to be careful not to misunderstand it. We're talking in eternity, not in time here. In eternity, we can think of the Father in some sense as the fountainhead of divinity. Not in some weird hierarchy as if the Father were more God than the Son or the Spirit. That is not true. They are all 100% God. But the way they're presented in Scripture is that the Father is in some sense the fountainhead of divinity and the Son proceeds from the Father eternally by eternal generation, eternal sonship. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's almost the most that we can say about the imminent Trinity or the Trinity within itself. By looking at Him in time and saying, what made it necessary for these relationships in time to look like this? Why is it that this isn't the Holy Spirit standing among the disciples saying, I will send Jesus? But it's Jesus saying the opposite, I will send the Holy Spirit. And it seems to be because of this eternal relationship. Now, if that has utterly confused you, that's entirely okay. The main point that I'm trying to make here is that the Holy Spirit, if this is true, the Holy Spirit is God. Completely, entirely God. One person of the triune God. In fact, you may wonder why we talk about these things sometimes. Um, interestingly, the largest controversy that ever struck Christianity, I think, in the history of the world, had to do with these very things, both the Arian controversy of the early church and a controversy called the Filioque controversy, over which, partly over which the whole church split into East and West. It was over, does the Spirit proceed from just the Father or from the Father and the Son in His being. You probably never thought of that. <laughs> but the whole church split over that. But it's good to think about. It seems from John that He proceeds from the Father and the Son. I don't know else, how else you take those passages. The main point here again is that the Holy Spirit is God Himself. So when verse 49 Jesus says, I'm sending this power upon you, and they have to wait to receive this power. If you ask, what kind of a power is that? It is unlimited power. There's only one being in the universe with unlimited power, and that is God Himself. And if the Holy Spirit is God, then the power they're waiting to receive is literally unlimited power, directly from and as God Himself. The Spirit will come upon them, clothe them, the text says. They will receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and all believers will thereafter. And they will be clothed with the Holy Spirit, with this power. Meaning, that is a metaphor, a picture of the Holy Spirit's relationship even with you if you're a Christian. You are clothed with this power, with the Holy Spirit. He lives within you, that's a metaphor. He clothes you, that's a metaphor, because it's hard to describe this relationship. But all the relationships in the Bible, speaking of the Spirit, He clothes you. It's because your clothes are all over you on your outside, touching almost all of you. 
Similarly, they won't just receive a little bit of the Holy Spirit in their foot. They're going to have such a close relationship with this power, this Holy Spirit, that it will be as if they are literally clothed, surrounded by Him. Same for you. There are those today who think that you only really receive the Holy Spirit like this, clothed with power, after you come to Christ, later on, maybe years later, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. I've never been able to square that with a simple passage like Romans 8, 9, which says anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. Which means what they would receive on Pentecost, you receive the moment you come to Christ. It has to be or you don't belong to Him. The moment you trusted in Christ, you were clothed with the same power. You received the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you right now. That's the truth of it. Do you know how I know that? Because how else are you a Christian? You can't change your heart. The Holy Spirit of God had to bring you into Christianity. It doesn't happen any other way. And are you living as a Christian? You can't do that. It's impossible. It is not humanly possible for you to reach into your chest and change your heart so that it desires God and loves others. You live the Christian life by the indwelling of the Spirit. The power that clothes them is a power that clothes you. If it doesn't, you're not a believer. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. So think for a moment in light of that about yourself. Look, there you are, if you are truly a Christian, and you're sitting there, and you look, no offense, you look like a normal person, and you've lived a pretty normal week, yes? So you go to work, you come home, you've got family perhaps, you're trying to raise your children, you're watching a show, you're reading a book, you're living what seems to be a rather normal life, just like your neighbors who don't know Christ. But you are not like your neighbors who do not know Christ. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. And if the Spirit is God, you have God inside you. When you make progress in loving your spouse, that wasn't you. That was the Holy Spirit working in your heart by His omnipotence, by His unlimited power, shaping your very inner person. You're not just moving sins around like any unbeliever can do or for selfish motives doing this or doing that. Your heart is literally changing to desire and look more like Christ. Your neighbor can't do that. You can do that. Your Christian life is impossible, but it's made possible by this same power. This is the power that Christ gave at Pentecost, not just to the apostles, he did give it to them in a unique way, but it carries on to all believers because the Christian life continues to be impossible and you need the Holy Spirit in order to live it. And you have received the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. It doesn't matter how you feel about that. It's, ir it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. You take a grizzly bear and you wrap him in wrapping paper and I promise you the wrapping paper will look different. <laughs> It will change. You take the Holy Spirit and you put Him in you and you will look different. It's the power of God Himself. Look, you might be a dirt jar, that's what Paul says, a jar of clay, but you have a treasure inside, not just the gospel, but the Holy Spirit Himself lives within you. You have to live in that knowledge. 
and recognize that you have the Holy Spirit. You are not like your unbelieving neighbor. And I point this out. As Christ is promising that he will empower his people, he will not leave them alone. I point that out, and Luke probably points this out too, because otherwise it's easy to surrender to a fatalism in your Christian life. You think, I've always had these bad habits. It's how my grandparents were. It's how my parents were. It's how I am. It's how I'll be to my death. I say, listen, somebody's lying here, either you or this, because this says you have the spirit of the living God to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This says that if the Holy Spirit dwells inside you, you know what fruit he produces in your life? You say, I'm just not a loving person, but the fruit of the spirit is love. You will be a loving person. You say, life is too difficult. I can't find joy. The fruit of the Holy Spirit living inside you is joy. So life is chaos. I feel no peace whatsoever. The fruit of the Holy Spirit living within you is peace. Not as the world gives. Not like your unbelieving neighbor. You have literal peace produced in you by the Holy Spirit of God. So my kids drive me crazy. I have no patience for them. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace patience. And you can go down that entire list. These are the things that the Holy Spirit produces in his people. Look, if you feel like you can't do these things, well, you're right. They're impossible. But you are clothed with power from on high. Christ ascended and gave gifts to men and gave the greatest gift, the Holy Spirit, to kill your old self and your old habits. You have addictions. You have sins you've struggled with a long time. Passed down generationally. I don't know. And there you are feeling like fatalistically this is just how you are. This is just who you are. It's your personality. It's in your DNA and it cannot change. Well, throw this Bible in the trash because it says it can. It says you bear the Holy Spirit. You can't live the Christian life on your own. I agree with you. That's why this text is in your Bible. Wait in Jerusalem Because for the church on earth to begin its great task of reaching the world, it needs the Holy Spirit. And when it has the Holy Spirit, its impossible task becomes possible. And you have the Holy Spirit of God. Now you might be looking at this text thinking, I don't see it talking about putting sin to death. I see a different task here, witnessing. Good, you're a good exegete, that's true. That is the primary emphasis of this text. What I said is true from the rest of the Bible. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. He changes us. But I do want to emphasize what Luke emphasizes here. What kind of power is in view? Not only the power of God himself, but it is a power for witnessing. Look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things to the apostles. Spirit is going to transform these men inwardly. You're going to have someone change from an ear chopper to someone who loves others even to the death, from cowards to courageous. The Spirit will do that, will empower them to do that. This is true. He's interested in changing his people, but it doesn't stop there. The Holy Spirit changes his people, his church, so that through the church he might change others. 
so that they might be witnesses and others brought into the flock. That is specifically the power they're going to receive. It is a power to bear witness to Christ's death and resurrection. This is a power for evangelism more than anything else. If you read the book of Acts, you see that they did receive that power and part of that power was miraculous healings. Even taking scarfs or handkerchiefs that had touched an apostle and it touches a sick person and they're healed. Casting out demons. Raising the dead. So you may want to leave here and feel like, I can do all of these things. No, you probably can't. Now the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do. If the Holy Spirit wants to raise the dead or do a miracle, he can do it. We're not going to stop him from that. However, he who inspired the scriptures at that early time and confirmed it by these miraculous happenings at the hands of these men, the apostles, does not regularly or generally confirm it in that way anymore. We have these scriptures preserved for us. So when we're receiving or being clothed with power from the Holy Spirit, we shouldn't expect that means I can reach my hand out and someone's cancer is completely cured, although God could do that. But it's not the normal operation of the Spirit in the church today. So what does the Spirit work in us? Not only the fruit, which is the greatest miracle, but when it comes to witnessing, for we are witnesses also of Christ's resurrection, how does the Spirit help us? By giving us boldness. We saw this even in the early, early church in Acts chapter 4. It says that after praying, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happened? And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. The Spirit is free to work miracles if He wants to, but this is the great miracle that He for sure is working today. And it is that we, who by nature may be timid, cowardly, afraid of the great world oppressing us and our confident other people who have their own opinions and ideas, we who might naturally shrink away from declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit works in us like a grizzly bear, if you will, in mighty power, and we become suddenly bold, not confident in ourselves, but confident in our message, and we proclaim it to others, and they come to know Christ, and the Spirit indwells them, changes their heart. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is power from on high that clothes His people, and it does so today. He does so today, just as He did in the past, even if some details differ. Are you a Christian? then you are clothed with the Spirit of God. We can't have any more of these excuses, myself or yourself, about our timidity in sharing the gospel, how we are not adequate or equipped to do it. If you have God himself living in you, you're equipped to do it. He can do what he pleases, and that's what he pleases to do in your life, that through you, your neighbors, your co-workers, the people you encounter every day would come to know this gospel, would know that Christ died and resurrected, and that through repentance, they can be forgiven of their sins. This is an impossible work to bring this message to all the ends of the earth. Especially when you have things like COVID and the chaos of life that we experience now, it seems even more impossible, and it is. But Christ has given us a more than possible power in the Holy Spirit, and He is in His church today. These things are impossible unless you are divinely empowered to do them. And this is what Christ has said to these apostles and through them to you. 
that you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Spirit of God, forgive us. Forgive us for the many times we live our lives without recognizing you, thinking about you. Forgive us for the many times that we live fairly secular lives. I pray that you would direct our attention to you as our power to humble us. And through you, do what you do best and direct our attention to Christ, our great Savior. That we would look to him and nowhere else for our salvation and would trust in him. Spirit, you are our seal as well of our salvation. You are the one who testifies with our spirits that we are the sons of God. Give us this comfort. Give us this courage in a chaotic time. Help us to be bold even unto death. Clothe us with power so that we might change, but also so that also our, our world and all the nations might change through faith in Christ. It's in his name we pray. 